from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 11th. Today, why many Americans aren't feeling the booming economy, a growing divide between Democrats in Congress, and an ethical question about flying. So when we talk about the state of the U.S. economy, how do people typically describe it right now? Well, certainly in the headlines lately, it looks very good. Economic growth accelerated in the first quarter of this year. We've got the stock market sitting at record highs. We just hit another one this this week. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. The S&P 500 crossing 3,000 for the first time. And well above what economists had been expecting. Unemployment rate, we saw that last week, still sitting at the lowest in in 50 years, uh, more or less. When you have this kind of uh, hiring, it's eventually going to ripple down, and there's just a lot of good in the economy. Uh, you know, you can look across a range of factors, and by and large, it looks pretty good. The formal term used in, in a congressional hearing yesterday by the head of the Federal Reserve was, um, it looks uh, solid. Overall, I'd, I'd say that our economy is, uh, is on a solid footing. But this isn't the case for everyone. When I travel the country, I hear two things. Number one, almost everyone will tell you it's a lot better today than it was in the midst of the Great Recession, and that's a good thing. But they'll also tell you a a sizable number of people will say, but I still feel anxiety. I still don't feel like I'm fully recovered, or I still don't feel like I'm able to get ahead. And I've been thinking about that anxiety for, for weeks now. Why do people still feel this way at a time when we're supposedly booming or very strong? And, you know, what I've come to learn is we still have some issues with wages in this country. And uh, some of our top policymakers talked about it this week. Like, hey, you know, yes, people have jobs, but the amount they're getting paid is difficult for them to live on. Half of jobs pay less than eighteen fifty an hour, and a third of jobs pay under $15 an hour. And again, that might be okay for a single person. I mean, it's going to be tough, but it's not so great if you have a family. We have this massive wealth inequality quality in the country. And what that means is, you know, how much people have in their homes and their bank accounts and their stock market holdings. And the reality is half of Americans still do not have the same amount of wealth today that they had in 2007 before the Great Recession. And the people that you've heard from who've talked about this ongoing anxiety about their economic situation and the fact that they don't have that kind of cushion, like who are these people? The easiest way to think about it is what we wrote in our headline, 40% of Americans say they are still struggling to pay their bills. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't paying them, but that it's a real strain month to month. And we know that from, there's a bunch of surveys that started after the Great Recession. People wanted to have a better handle on what was going on. Uh, So UBS, an investment bank, this is hardly a lefty organization, and they've really been tracking the statistic for a while. And they've been screaming, really, to say to their clients, there's really a two-tiered recovery going on. About 60% of people have been able to benefit and 40% 
uh, are really still struggling. And that's an alarmingly high number that has, in their surveys at least, has not shown any improvement since 2014. So who are these people? We wish we knew a ton more about them. But you can by and large say that they tend to be more families of color younger Americans, so those born after 1970. And also, of course, this won't surprise anyone, households earning less than 60000 a year. So 60000 is about that median household income. So we're talking about kind of the bottom half of the income spectrum are the least likely to have recovered from the crisis. And they're the ones who, are the, who still have the high anxiety and the high struggle to pay their bills. Hi. Okay. Uh, my name is Summer Johnson, and currently I am uh, an underwriting assistant for a commercial insurance company. One of the people I spoke with, Summer Johnson, who lives in the Atlanta suburbs, she's a great example of this. Um, so much was going right for her. You know, she had a job. She was trying to take online college classes, doing very well in them. Our lives was pretty normal. Um, my husband has a job. Uh, I have a job. They had some savings. They purposely you know, rented a home and, an, and that they felt was the best that they could afford, but you know, still allowed them to save a little bit, even from a modest income. So they really thought that they were doing a lot of the right things to, to try to get ahead. We were living well. I had savings. He had savings. The kids were fine. And then uh, suddenly my mother-in-law got sick. And um, she was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And one night my husband called and said, um, Mom died. I need you to get here right now. Anybody who's gone through this knows there were a lot of expenses related to the funeral and the burial. I didn't think it was going to be as difficult as it, as it turned out to be because uh, my mother-in-law was very organized. She had been preparing him for a while anyway. And the mother-in-law had a home on a, a bit far away, too far away from them to move into. And they inherited this home and they had to pay a bunch of fees to upkeep it. They tried to sell it. The sale didn't go through. So they, they ended up having to sort of manage two, two households at the same time. By then, the life insurance was starting to run out. And, you know, it just it was too much. It was too much of a financial burden. It ate up their savings and ultimately ate into a big chunk of what they were earning month to month. And Summer ended up losing um, her used car. So the family was down to just one car. It was between daycare and food or a vehicle. So we opted um, to just let go of the vehicle because really there was nothing else for us to let go of. And what did she say when you talked to her about what this experience has been like for her? I think you don't think you're going to be in this situation. And uh, she said to me, I kept hearing this is one of the best economies we've ever had. Unemployment is down, especially for African-Americans. But I'm looking around going, where is this boom? I have plenty of friends who and family members who are not a part of the best economy ever. I personally have been looking for other employment closer to my home that I'm well qualified for but I'm not getting hired for. My husband, the same. It's almost like you're drowning, but you're not dying. Like you're in a constant state of drowning because you just can't get your head above water long enough to not drown. 
it's interesting since the stories run, I've, I've received a lot of emails and some people, of course, are like, you know, why can't these people get their act together and they're just making bad choices? But um, I'd say the other half of the emails have been, I'm in the same situation. And several of those emails have come from people's work accounts, you know, have come from people who are working at hospitals, you know, who are working in warehouses, who are, again, they have jobs, but uh, it's, it's not enough pay and they certainly don't, aren't able to save. Who else did you talk to about this? I talked to actually um, 30 people for this story. A lot of people were scared to put their name out there. You know, nobody wants to be the poster child for a rough financial time. But so many people wanted to share their story. They just didn't want to be named. But another common thread, I spoke to a woman named Kathleen who lives in upstate New York. I am 69 years old, and I live about an hour north of Albany, New York. Her story resonated because it's so similar to what I was hearing from a lot of people who were afraid to share their name, and that is uh, a healthcare situation really threw them off course. Uh, and in her case, um, she was a real estate agent. Again, felt like she was living a very middle class life. She and her husband uh, doing more than getting by, and suddenly she had back trouble. She ended up having a series of back surgeries. 2015, I had major back surgery, so I wasn't able to work for about six months. It was severe. And I had to have another one in 2016 to fix that back surgery. I had to decrease my working hours as a real estate broker. I used to have a very successful career. As a real estate agent, if you're not working, you're not selling, you're not getting those commissions. And so her income basically goes down. And at the same time, there's all these bills to pay, bills for these hospital bills, uh, bills for therapy. It turned into a huge financial uh, crisis for them, and they ended up losing a car as well. Without a car, I can't do my business. Real estate has to be done with a car in this area. You meet people, you show them houses. It was like shocking. You cannot anticipate how fast everything goes tumbling down. Our credit rating is shot. I had to cash in my 401k. All my savings went. All my retirement benefits went away because we needed the money to survive. And it's, it's pretty awful. I think for Kathleen, it, it was devastating. She sent me a series of emails. We, we've been corresponding since February, and every now and then we would touch base. And it, you could see she, A, there was some shame. You, again, you don't expect to be in this situation. And there's also the day-to-day reality. She would send me some emails sometimes. You know, I, I haven't been able to go to the grocery store in several days because we that was our family car for her and her husband. And I, I sometimes hear uh, readers will say, well, what about, why can't they use Uber or Lyft? I mean, again... Someone who's in a financially strapped situation, unfortunately, that $15 or $10 to get uh, take that ride both to the grocery and home, just not feasible. So what exactly is the reason why you have such a large swath of the population that is being left behind in this otherwise booming economy? The two easiest explanations are, one, the, the pay disparities. Um, we just have a lot of people who are earning very meager wages. And I think what makes me nervous is of the 10 fastest growing jobs in this country, six of them pay $35,000 or less. So when we look into the future, it doesn't look like that's getting any better. We live in this barbell economy where we've got a bunch of jobs growing that pay sort of 90000 and above, and then a bunch growing that pay that 35000 and below. And there just are not a lot of those middle-class jobs that are, that are really expanding. In the United States, we have put more and more of the onus on the individual 
to to be prepared for financially rough times. And what I mean by that is, you know, we used to have a lot of people who receive pensions. Now you have to save on your own for your 401k for your retirement. So that onus is on you. Same thing with healthcare. As those healthcare expenses and those college expenses have, have exploded, that more and more of that onus is falling on the individual to have to pay higher bills. So what does the future of this look like? Like as the economy continues to get better, hopefully, is there an expectation that that will start to lift the the experience for this like lower 40% of people who are really struggling or is this just like what the economy looks like right now that for some people things will be really good and for some people things will be really bad even if everyone's talking about the economy being so great this is the fundamental debate for election 2020 when we talk about the economy heading into the election this is the core issue Are enough people getting ahead? Are enough people benefiting? Or do we need some dramatic change? You know, the White House, the president, he tweets and he talks about how great the economy is. And when I talk to his economic advisors, like Larry Kudlow, his top economist, they'll tell me, it's getting better, Heather. How can you argue against that and just give it more time? More and more people will begin to feel the benefits and be uplifted. It's only a matter of time. You know, on the flip side, the Democrats are arguing there is massive inequality in this country and it's not going to be changed by a year or two of better jobs, lower unemployment, if those jobs are paying such a such a low amount. You know, they're very worried about where this barbell economy is going when we have a bunch of people at top benefiting and a bunch of people at the bottom who really are, are not getting by or barely getting by. And when you think of this idea of, of, like you phrased it, a barbell economy with a lot of people at the top and a lot of people at the bottom, what are the implications of that, not just for the people at the bottom, but for the economy as a whole? There's huge implications. I think there's a lot of concern about, again, how many people are going to be hurt uh, and continue to be hurt, particularly, God forbid, if we go into a downturn, an economic downturn, if people are barely getting by now. um, Sometimes when I talk to Wall Streeters, they tell me, oh, it's okay. You know, if we do go into another recession, it's going to be a light one. You know, it's going to be like 2001 or 1991. You're barely going to feel it. Well, the difference today, if we went into, a, let's say, 2021, if we go into a downturn, the difference is if we have so many people, this 40% who are already struggling to pay their bills, we are going to have millions more people who would fall off the edge or who would be in a very dangerous situation. And we just didn't see that as much in 91 or 2001. Interesting. So it, it seems like in some ways having so many people who are still sort of struggling at the bottom and having this this increased polarization of of who benefits from the economic success of the country and who doesn't, that it it kind of destabilizes the whole economy and makes it less resilient if there is a downturn. I think that's a very real possibility. And so where does that end up? I don't know. And I think we're just beginning to learn that as we look around the world and we see this this rising frustration in many countries from a, a huge population that does not feel that they're benefiting. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post.
Madam Speaker, there's been a lot of debate over um, the way you and um, Representative um, Ocasio-Cortez are relating to each other these days. What is your response to this? I said what I'm going to say in the caucus. Today, at a press conference on Capitol Hill, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was asked about the growing tensions among House Democrats. We respect the value of every member of our caucus. The diversity of it all is a wonderful thing. Diversity is our strength. Unity is our power. Can you first say where you are? Um, I'm in the Capitol in a tiny carpeted room in the attic of the Capitol. Mike DeMonis covers Congress for The Post. And as soon as he was done filing his story about this press conference, we reached him at the Capitol to talk about what this feud is all about. Basically, what it is is a power struggle between the most powerful woman in the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and a group of four freshman Democrats who, by all rights, are rank-and-file members of the House, but they also have a great following among liberal activists and left-wing Democrats, and they've gotten a huge amount of attention and acclaim from many quarters and have been extremely effective in getting attention and promoting their policy views and, in a lot of cases, making life difficult for Nancy Pelosi and more moderate members of the Democratic caucus. And who are these four freshman members of the House? It's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. It's Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, and Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts. And together, these four women, they have like a whole nickname. They're called the Squad. They're the Squad. The Quad Squad, some, some are calling them. But yeah. <laughs> and so we've heard kind of reports of some tensions within the party, you know, especially between the more moderate members of the party and party leadership, and then these more left representatives. And we've heard this since Democrats took over control of the House. But this has seemed to be bubbling up more over the last few weeks. What has been happening? Well, if you ask the squad, and we have asked the squad, basically they're saying, you know, we're getting sort of poked and prodded by Pelosi in sort of gratuitous ways here. She has made the series of comments basically questioning our political clout. What sparked this latest sort of blow up was a comment that Pelosi gave to New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd, who wrote a big sort of Sunday takeout that, you know, they have their Twitter followings and whatever, but they have just four votes, and, and that's what they got. That was referring to a recent vote on a border spending bill that exposed a lot of sort of raw feelings inside the Democratic caucus. And and people saw those comments, and I think a lot of people thought that that was pretty dismissive. Yeah, certainly. And it was, it was basically saying the way that the members of the squad interpreted it was, is that our voices don't matter, that our constituents are being dismissed by the leader of our party. Now, Pelosi believes she said something much different. Her view is she was just referring to the stark reality, which is that these four women certainly have their votes and they represent their constituency. But the fact that it was just the four of them alone on this particular bill shows that they haven't built a larger coalition inside the House of Representatives. And for Nancy Pelosi, who's been operating inside the House of Representatives for almost 30 years, actually more than 30 years, that is the coin of the realm, is that, you know, you have to be able to get votes and win votes and if you want to accomplish things. And as far as she's concerned, she was just making a factual observation. 
But there have been other comments from Speaker Pelosi that people have also said have been disrespectful to these four freshman members. Right. You know, she made a comment about the Green New Deals, calling it the Green New Dream or whatever you want to call it. She made a uh, reference to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the fact that her district is so liberal that a glass of water could be elected there if it had a, a D next to its name. And when you've talked to Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and, and the other members of the squad about these comments, what do they say and how are they taking it? I think the reaction has been that they have been sort of confused by them. Early on in this Democratic majority, all the way back in January, it seems like uh, ages ago, but they were being very openly embraced by the speaker. They were on the covers of magazines. They were doing photo shoots together. They were embraced. They felt embraced and they felt like the face of the new Democratic majority. What's happened since then is that things have sort of proceeded into the legislative grind. Nancy Pelosi's trying to pass bills. She's trying to keep Democrats united as much as possible as a bulwark against Republicans and President Trump. And she has not seen their activities as necessarily being part of the team. And I think that she's actually trying to send the message, particularly to her more moderate members, the members that she believes are, are crucial to making sure Democrats hold and keep the majority, that they're sort of driving the bus here. It's not the squad. And I think that that's sort of her main concern here is keeping the center of gravity of the caucus more towards the center than the left wing. And you've reported on the fact that there was a meeting this week where Speaker Pelosi basically gave either a pep talk or or kind of a lay of the land of like, this is what you need to do and this is what you're not allowed to do. Yeah. What happened is they had a caucus meeting Wednesday morning and she basically sent the message like, listen, we're a family. Families fight sometimes, but they keep it in the family. We don't go on Twitter and tweet about our colleagues being bad people or having bad motives or being racists or other things. Sort of the main thing that sparked this was that AOC's chief of staff, a fellow by the name of Saikot Chakrabarty, had sent a tweet last month in the heat of the, the border battle accusing the more moderate caucuses of being akin to Southern Dixiecrats who were enabling racism and, and, the, and a racist system before the civil rights era. Why do you think that this feud has gotten so much attention over the past few weeks? Nancy Pelosi is is really probably the most compelling figure in Congress of her generation. And she's the most powerful and effective leader Democrats have had on Capitol Hill since probably Lyndon Johnson. And to have her facing this sort of internal tumult has been a really incredible story. And it's been one of the things that really points to what the direction of the Democratic Party is going to look like. One of the things that's really interesting about this is that there have been similar situations in the past on the Republican side, where you have this small, tight-knit group of ultra-conservative members of Congress who really start to derail things. You have the Gang of Seven, you have the Freedom Caucus, and I'm wondering what are the lessons that we can learn from that about how things might go down for the Democrats now that they're in this situation? If you're too focused on the inside baseball of Congress, sometimes that all gets swept away by outside fervor. Like the Freedom Caucus got their power and they felt their power by sort of ignoring what the sort of inside machinations were of power here in the Capitol. And they they felt 
void of an outside desire for change. In, in those cases, it was on the conservative side. I think in this case, the squad is really feeling buoyed by the liberal activist energy. And, you know, if passes prologue, like that can really change the way things are done inside the building. And I think that Nancy Pelosi is probably needs to be a little more attuned to that. But she is very well known for having her finger on the pulse, not only inside the building, but outside. And we'll see if she, how she adapts over the next you know, weeks and months to respond to this. Mike DeBonis is a congressional reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. It's F-L-Y-G-S-K-A-M. Flagscum? Flagscum? I don't know how to say the word in Swedish. Hannah Samson is a travel reporter for The Post. And she's been covering a growing movement called Flagscum. It means flight shame or flying shame. The shame that you feel for flying. So this is a movement that started in Sweden, and it's kind of been gaining steam in Europe. Activists are making the point that by flying great or short distances, they're contributing to the man-made impact on climate change. There's some numbers out there that say one round-trip flight across the country from New York to California generates about 20% of the greenhouse gases that your car emits over an entire year. And that's just one round-trip flight. La France s'est engagée à ce que l'Europe avance sur la voie d'une taxation du transport aérien. Just this week, France passed an eco-tax on all flights that take off out of France. And this money that they raise will be used for other forms of mass transportation that are considered cleaner, namely trains. Aussi, nous avons décidé, comme l'ont fait d'autres pays, de mettre en œuvre une éco-contribution sur le transport. population. So there are things that people can do that are less harmful. So we can buy carbon offsets that maybe plant forests. You can pack less because that's less fuel the plane has to burn if your suitcase isn't loaded all the way down. But it does seem like there are a lot of other people who are coming around to that mindset that, why don't we consider not flying? Maybe we don't need to go on vacations all over the world. How can we justify doing this for our own leisure when the planet is going nuts? Now that this flight-shaming idea has gained some momentum, people actually are paying attention. Do you remember your first flight? We do. At the Come end of here. June, KLM, the Dutch airline, launched this big Fly Responsibly initiative. But a hundred years of aviation comes with great responsibility because you want our children to get to know this beautiful world too, right? That's so they're saying, these are all the things we're doing, biofuels, newer fuel-efficient jets. Here are the things you as travelers can do. And that's why we want to ask you something to fly more responsibly. One of those things was flying less. Do you always have to meet face to face? 
Could you take the train instead? My, my reaction to this campaign was, wait, what? <laughs> They're really saying don't use our business as much as maybe you have been, which kind of seems wild. I do think most people have a halo that they place on travel and on flying and discovering new parts of the world or connecting with people in other parts of the country. It's generally seen as a good thing. So to think about the fact that in doing this really good, socially acceptable thing, there's also a bad element. It's kind of a harsh dose of reality. And I'm not sure that the world is ready for the broad grappling of those two conflicting ideas. Wanting to do this wonderful thing and explore the world and knowing that you're making an impact on the world that's negative by doing it. Hannah Sampson is a reporter for By the Way, a new section focused on travel at The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by heading to postreports.com and join the conversation on social media using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode is sponsored by the Aquarius Project podcast from the Adler Planetarium. When a meteor crashed in a Great Lake, these Chicago teenagers... Is this actually going to, like, go somewhere? ...joined forces with scientists... They specialize in asteroids. ...to find a way to hunt for space rocks... The so-called small bodies of the solar system. ...200 feet underwater. It's not impossible. It's There's not a 0% chance. From the Adler Planetarium, the Aquarius Project podcast... Subscribe now, wherever you listen.